Hello and welcome back to Fully Booked, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Toucher, myself, Roland Hume, talk to some leading lights and interesting figures in this crazy industry we're in of writing and self-publishing. So today we have a very, very special guest who I'm especially excited to talk to. It is Anna J. Stewart, who writes romantic suspense books. She's in the same genre as me, and she is here to talk to us about how you can keep track of a large cast of characters, which is a problem I, I experience. So I am very, very excited to hear all your wisdom. So how are you doing today, Anna? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we wouldn't be here without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems Books and an author himself. How are you doing today, Craig? I'm doing well. Thanks, Roland. And uh, welcome, Anna. So, yeah, I'm also uh, very interested to hear uh, what you have to say. We were talking a little bit before we started about um, George R.R. Martin and his massively large cast of characters (laughs) and how sometimes it's hard, just even for the readers, to keep track of who everyone is and um as a writer i know if i was writing a book with a cast like that i would have to have all sorts of notes and family trees posted like all across my walls so that i could (laughs) always look back but even as a reader it's like who's that again and and we're watching you know elsa the dragon and then game of thrones and even then you're just like i don't know who they're talking about and you gotta go look it up (laughs) online or whatever so um, so yeah, hopefully you've got some wisdom for uh, for us as writers to keep track of everything, and then maybe even what we can do to help make sure that readers can keep track of everything, right? Because there's both sides of it. So, uh, so yeah, let's get started with that. How did you? First of all, what do you write? What genre do you write in? And and you know how big are your cast of characters? And how did you get started with all this? So um, I write romance and then I write in multiple subgenres of romance. So I write sweet contemporary romance, which is like small town uh, Hallmark movie type romances. I also write a little bit spicier romantic suspense for Harlequin. And then I'm also venturing out into um, a little bit steamier single title romantic suspense, which um, starts next week with my release of Exposed. But um so, I mean, I kind of fell into writing in high school when my friends and I started writing what then was called fan, fi- what we now would call fan fiction. So that's kind of how I got uh, bit by the writing bug that coincided with me discovering romance novels. So from then on, I kind of figured that's really what I want to do. It took me a while to figure out how to do it and to to make my mark as far as getting into the traditional publishing world like I wanted. I'm not built for self-publishing. Self-publishing self-published authors work way harder than I want to work. I just want to write the book and send it in and pass it on. So but from from the beginning I I liked filling up the pages with a bunch of personalities. And that's not to say that there is not a solitary hero and heroine, but um, all of my books, whatever the genre I'm writing, and I've also written paranormal and a couple of other uh, subgenres in the, within writing. Uh, all of my books are always about the family we create for ourselves as we move through life. So whether it's focusing on the fa- the crazy Italian family that one of my heroes was born into, and he's the oldest brother of six, or it's, um, an only child who has severe trust issues, but her best friends have become her family. So there's always an element of a larger cast of characters in my book, not only because it makes it fun and gives a uh, anchor 
to my characters because I, I, I think it's really hard to get through this life all on your own. You always need somebody else there. So that's a natural fit for characters, but also it lends itself really well to writing sequels and keeping the world going or the storyline going or whatever. And as a reader, what I always loved were the books that had larger casts of characters and you're reading the second book kind of to find out what happened to the characters in the first book. And as they're being pulled along in subsequent books, there are some couples that you want to follow more than others or, or that you just want to follow all of the couples. So for me, that's really the fun about um, writing large casts of characters is you get to play catch up and you get to introduce, and then you get to focus on the third. So you're really kind of a lot of times telling three or multiple stories, depending on how many uh, people you have. Um, my Butterfly Harbor books, for example, they were 12 books long. I had 12 couples by the end of that series. I needed to bring back into that final book just to give readers a final. And this is where they are and moving into. Um, so it's also fun. I like I like that particular juggling act. Other juggling at that point, at fun. that point, though, it is no less epic than, say, Avengers Endgame, where you had all the characters and the different things. I mean, OK, yes, it's a yeah. small town romance. But when you've got that many people, you have to to keep track of and give enough stuff. That's there's an awful lot of thought yeah. that goes into these things that sometimes I think people on the outside don't appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, that's where um, I've fumbled around figuring out a system to keep track of everything. Um, for a long, long time, I was just a spiral notebook girl. I mean, going back to school time was my happy place because I could go in and stock up on, you know, stacks of spiral notebooks and pens because that's how I would keep track of everything. Now that's not practical to do. Now it has now it has to be online or online. I, I finally have migrated into a digital notebook online. Um, which makes it a little bit easier, especially with the search function. Thank goodness I can just type in a name and it'll pop up the information that I need instead of having to flip through dozens and dozens of pages and where did I put this person and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's fun, though. Are you keeping track uh, in that digital notebook of sort of all of the pertinent information about each character and their relationships? So this is Bob and he's got black hair and blue eyes and he's married to Sarah, but he had a relationship with Anne, you know, like, or whatever. It's that. How yeah. Do. Yeah, I, I do. And um, it gets filled in as I write the book because I don't plot. So um, I have a general idea of who the characters are. I try to find a picture early on of at least a general idea uh, mainly because, at least with my Harlequins, by the time I finish the book, I'm going to have to fill in what's called an art fact sheet. And they're going to ask for that information. They're going to, you know, and they're even going to ask for inspiration pictures. So all of that information goes into its own file. And I use OneNote. Um, it just happened, it, you know, it came with my computer. I have a friend who gives a fabulous workshop in it. And she gave me a private tutorial as far as how she uses it for hers because she writes well, God, she writes more genres than I do, but she's also working in epic YA fantasy right now. So she has uh, specific needs that she needs and uh, so many more threads that she has to keep track of. So being able to see how she did it really helped me understand what the program was capable of and how you can really tweak it to your own necess to your own needs. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I use OneNote, but not really for... Um 
for that. I know when I was doing it, I'm more of a of a plotter, but um, I I went through a period where I used Scrivener a lot, and mm. uh, you know took took my notes. I'm sure I wasn't using it as effectively <laughs> with all the features that I could have yeah. been, but <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> one note would probably be easier. It's that's a free it's free, right? One note is yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it came with it came with the laptop, so right. Um, and I think I even had it uh, originally when I had it, which I didn't understand what it really was when it when I first had it. But I got it in the in the CD or in the DVD case or CD case that you used to have to go to the store to buy Office instead of just downloading. Don't speak to me of the old times, Gandalf. I was there. <laughs> Man, yeah. how did we survive it? <laughs> yeah. My, with our 5.25 floppy disks. That's what I remember. Oh, yeah. I still have <laughs> some of those. I had to get one of the readers so that I could move all my stuff over to the new computer. Yeah, they still have. They have to, I guess. People yeah. have their old stuff, right? That's funny. Um so it- I was going to say, it's so interesting looking at the the whole idea of having a huge cast of characters, because what you do, well, how you use those characters and how like George R.R. Martin used those characters are very different. Like he'll have a huge span within one book. I love, I mean, one of the things that I love about romance as a genre and got me into it is having books focused on one couple with other characters. And then the next book is on one of those characters. And you're right. And it makes every yeah. book so rewarding to read. But you have to keep track of all those characters and what happens mm-hmm. to the characters and things. A book one of my series, I had a character who had a brother. And then I wrote another five books down the line in which he was uh, an only child. And I'm like, you got to keep track of these things, haven't you? Yeah. Because <laughs> well, readers yeah, you to, readers are going to catch it if you get it wrong. Readers will catch it. They're like the I don't want to say they're the worst editors, but they're the most attention detailed editors that you're ever going to have. Are your readers because it's going to be stuff you miss, your editor miss, the copy editor miss. Somebody is going to find that oopsie in your book, and they will and make it, sure you know. It's kind of flattering in a way because it's like they're yes. so invested in these characters that they feel betrayed by the fact that you got this detail wrong. Because it's like, exactly. do, do you not care about this person the way I care about them? So, yeah. yeah, you know, in, in a way it's unfair. They have an unfair advantage, right? Especially because, you know, you're writing each book and it's taking you X amount of time, months. Some people take even longer to, to write a book. Then you you move on to the next one. Then you move on to the next. And the, and the period of time between each older book gets longer and longer. So, yeah, you know, you're going to potentially forget things, right? But the reader comes in at any point, and they could be binging, reading one, two, three, four. So it's much easier in time for them to remember these details and see, oh, you forgot something. Because I just read book one. Yes, you know, I finished it yesterday. Right. Now I'm reading book two. And, and then last next week, I'm reading three. And I can remember, you know, whereas for you, there's maybe years in between when you wrote those books. For them, it's maybe weeks or days. Yeah, Right. You hope. As a writer, yeah. that's what you want, right? Because that was the kind of reader I was. I waited and, you know, I waited until a series was done before I would start reading it. And then I would just binge and do absolutely nothing else, if possible. Um, except for series that continue to go on, obviously. I have a couple of those that, you know, she's never going to reach the end of that series. So I'm just going to have to read them as they come in. But yeah, I mean, as, as that's that was always my favorite thing as a reader. So that's always the experience I'm hoping my readers have. So one question I have for you, which I'm definitely looking for your, your wisdom here, because it's a challenge I find is, yeah, I write a book 
about a couple um and in the next book it's about a different couple but that first couple's in there and sometimes you want things to happen to that couple that you can you know approach again like you know maybe they break up or maybe they buy a business or maybe they move to colorado or whatever but how do you avoid um letting that story take up too much of the actual book which is focused on the different couple or is that something i'm overthinking about i'm always like i want this book to be approachable for somebody who's never read anything in the series but maybe that doesn't work um it's about point of view i think because in my books the only points of view i tell the story through are that particular hero and heroine so they're not you're not seeing the other people's experiences through their own eyes, you're seeing it through the focused couple's eyes. Um, So for instance, I start writing book two in this series next week and I'm anxious to see where Riley and Quinn from Exposed are going to be, but I'm only going to see that through Mabel's perspective. Um, So for people who later down the road read the second book first I have to be sure to seed in enough information and breadcrumbs that don't tell the entire story, but give enough of a teaser that they're going to go, oh, I need to go back and read their story now because I didn't read it the first time I'm jumping into the series in the middle. So I, I personally, I think it's point of view is the answer to that. So whether or not, I don't think you're overthinking it. I think it's a really valid question. Um, but it's 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 how those characters are being perceived through your current character's eyes is really, uh, I think, the trick to to making that work. That's a brilliant answer. That's a brilliant answer. That's I again, a lot of people don't give romance enough credit, but I love the the alternating viewpoints, the first person thing. I think that makes such a disciplined way of telling stories. Like I look at George R. R. Martin, who writes everything in third person, and it must be so easy for him to be writing, you know, a, a a chapter based on this character's perspective and then like drift off and start focusing on a different character. Right. Whereas first person forces you to be disciplined. Well, actually I do write in third person. I don't write oh. in first. Ah, so you, you see you, you're the, you're the master right here. How do you <laughs> avoid that? You said through that person's perspective, that must take incredible discipline, especially when you write in third person to keep focused on that well, person's viewpoint. Yeah, I the main problem I've had is remembering whose point of view I'm in, whether I'm in the hero or the heroine's point of view. That for me is sometimes the tricky part. And even now, you know, I've I've written 52 novellas and novels. I still f- accidentally flip, and I get a I get a note from my editor. In fact, this just happened in the last book. She says, "I think you originally wrote this in the other point of view because you've got a head hop in the middle of the scene." So um, I'm personally, um, I don't care for first person. Uh, for me, it's, it's a really hard sell to get me to read a first person book. Usually the first page will determine whether or not I do, whether or not I j- can jump right into it or not. But I think that's just because everything I read growing up, it was very rarely first person. So I think you tend to gravitate and are comfortable with what you know, right? I mean, I grew up reading Stephen King and Dean Koontz and, and um, well, Nora Roberts was my first romance author, but all of those are third person. So when I started writing, it was just natural for me to do it. So it makes first person really hard. But um, so I, I don't know whether or not it's easy or difficult to write in the third person. It's just what apparently my natural bend is. I think it takes a lot more discipline as a writer to write in third person. 
so like that's done just because it's so easy to like drift off whereas if you are i'm doing this and i'm doing that first person you can only write about what that person can experience and describe. Yes, and I remember, I remember thinking that when I was reading The Hunger Games, actually, because there were times, because that entire series is told through Katniss's perspective, but the entire time I found myself saying, oh, wow, I would really like to hear so-and-so's perspective on what they're experiencing and what their emotions are. And for me, that's the gift that third person really gives me is that I get to experience the same story twice through two completely different perspectives and also be able to uh, present two different uh, complete argument, two different arguments. And that's where conflict comes in. Right. So you're seeing two people work through their own issues as they're working to find their way together in a romance. So the, the third person perspective really lends itself well to being able to offer multiple, uh, multiple perspectives on the same issues. I, you, you I, can always you can always go the um, Orson Scott card route where he you know he wrote Ender's Game from Ender's perspective and then years later he basically rewrote the series from Bean's perspective you know right. it was just like I just rewrote just sell these books again same story but told from another person's perspective which yeah you know it's another way to go I guess I mean I've never seen that done before but <laughs> um, but yeah no I think that the the idea of um you know following the characters having the different characters in and then launching the next book based on there is is brilliant not only from you know the story perspective and everything we're talking about but also from a marketing perspective it's mm-hmm. just it's it's better because you now you have a series that that uh keeps drawing people in people want to read by the next book but also there's usually standalone so anybody can come yeah. in at any point in the series discover that series and then go off and read the other ones it, as opposed to, you know, a series where everything has to follow one, two, three, four, it's harder to market number four because you really have to market number one, right? You know, you need right. people to start at the beginning. Whereas now every book you can market fresh and be like, Hey, come on in right here if you want to, and then start over there and see how all those other characters. Yeah. Came. Yeah. Right. And that's probably the, the, a little bit of trouble I'm probably putting myself into with this new series, uh, Circle of the Red Lily. It is going to be five books. I know that going in. That's about the only thing I knew going in because since I don't plot. But um, this is one that is going to have an overarching mystery that starts in book one and ends in book five. But at its heart, it's a romance novel. So it is about a relationship, a growing relationship, establishing a relationship and landing in a relationship that's really at the heart of the book. And then the external plot runs through the five. So I think that's where romance really um, can shine is because the attention is on the couple and the relationship and everything else is kind of gravy. Um, and that even when you're writing a series that's really tightly connected, and this one will be, um, it's the couples that really stand out and bring the readers in. So if somebody picks up book three, hopefully they will, down the line, um, I will have found a way to introduce couple one and couple two and give you a peek into who couple four and couple six are or five are um, within the confines of book three. And then that draws them into reading the other ones. Um as they come out and also, you know, catch up on the ones that they missed at first. 
I think that's another thing I think romance doesn't get enough credit for. What you described just then about when you write, read a romance story, you want it to be about the relationship between these two yep. characters and anything that happens outside of it happens. And it's I think that's a really good way to approach storytelling because that's how people work, isn't it? We we mm-hmm. focus on our relationships with other people. We're driven by emotions. Absolutely. Whereas when you have like a five book series with an overarching plot and you need these things to happen, it's very easy to make characters do things because it's convenient to the plot that you put there. Whereas in reality, characters do what is they are done, uh, what they want to do through like emotion and relationships. And so you have to you have to make sure your story fits within that, which, again, I think just brings such a discipline to storytelling that is sometimes absent in other genres, especially thriller writers. Yeah. And I, you know, I've read, like I said, I grew up reading thrillers. John Sanford was one of my early favorites. Um, I haven't read one of his books in a really long time, but I remember thinking at the time when I was reading those, it was definitely told from a male perspective. Um, And uh, female thriller writers, I think have a little bit uh, better handle on how to deal with the emotions that should come with thrilling writing. And that's not to say John Sanford didn't do a great job. John Sanford books are fabulous. I love those. I wish to God I could remember. <laughs> it was the Prey series that I was just addicted to growing up. But um, romance is all about emotion. And it's about um, overcoming internal conflicts in order to become who you need to be to be with this other person, right? And that's kind of like what we all do in real life, right? We're told we're supposed to grow up, fall in love, get married, and have a relationship. And yet in the in the publishing industry, romance really gets kicked around a lot for being nothing but fluff. But I'm like, romance is what life is. Yes. Really. And it's just whatever circumstances that are surrounding them is the subgenre. But at its heart, it's all about emotion and connection to another human being. Um, so I appreciate you saying that, that, you know, romance doesn't get a lot of credit. It doesn't get a lot of credit. It gets kicked around a heck of a lot. And it's the biggest moneymaker in the publishing industry. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry a year. And it did really well during the pandemic because people needed that escape. They needed yeah. that, that promise of the happily ever after that also is hope. You know, romance is the genre of hope, whatever subgenre you're writing in. So, um, yeah, it's 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 that emotional connection in the romances that really has has earned such a devoted following. And it's it to me, it's it's really fun to write because I get to write multiple people falling in love over and over and over again. And it's all new to me because I never know how it's going to happen. So, yeah. And I think, you know, you're right. Like, uh, um though for those reasons i think it was it was important during the pandemic but i think it's also because um you know it's about relationships and about uh you know all the different people that we have in our lives and talk to and fall in love with and and go out with and do whatever which is what we couldn't do during the pandemic we were all stuck inside so it's almost like we're living vicariously through um, these books that are about relationships, these relationships that we were starved for <laughs> during yes. the pandemic, right? So, yeah. um, so taking that back around to the original idea of this large cast of characters, I just wanted to. Um, so, you know, you had your twelve book series, and by the end, you had twelve couples that you had. But by book in book one, were you already introducing all those people, or did they just sort of grow from book one to book twelve? 
so originally I knew I wanted the Butterfly Harbor books to be eight. I had eight originally planned. So I had eight characters I knew were going to be hovering around in these small towns and they'd be able to be introduced. And um, and book one is a hero who has come back after growing up in Butterfly Harbor, left under kind of uh, nefarious circumstances. He was the bad boy. It was called, the book is called The Bad Boy of Butterfly Harbor. And he comes back to be sheriff while he's hooking up with um, people, or not hooking up, but he's connecting with people he went to high school with who remember him as the bad boy. So, and a lot of those characters become heroes and heroines in the subsequent books. So um, as he's reintroducing himself to the town and to the people, car- uh, readers are getting an idea as to, oh, okay, that one's clearly going to get their own story. This one probably won't because they're not quite as developed. But um, I, my readers always knew uh, when I've introduced a new character, whether or not they were going to get a story. And it usually has to do with how old the character is, whether or not I take the time to describe what they look like or um, or something to that effect. So originally I knew it was going to be eight. It turned into 12 books because I kept meeting new people as they walked on the page. And, you know, that's one of the pitfalls to not plotting is you never know who's going to show up. Um, so it's so funny how you're like, this is going to be five books long. It's going to be eight books long. And it's like, I thought you said you weren't a plotter, but somewhere in well, your brain. It's I should say I'm not a plotter. As, yeah, I'm not a plotter as far as uh, the precise uh, events that happen in the book. But as far as um, what I want to happen in the series, yes, I have a clear cut idea of that. Now, that's not to say that's what happens by the time I get to the end of the book. Um, as far as a plot, because multiple times I've thought, especially in the romantic suspense, I thought I've known who the person responsible was. And no, by the time I got to the end of the book, I'm like, no, if I do that, that's way too predictable. They'll see that coming two books away. I'm not going to do that. So it gives me a a kind of freedom to be able to twist that around, around. And as long as I don't betray what I've already set in stone in those previous books or with those previous characters, um, that's the trick too, to writing a large cast of characters is you have to be really careful how much detail you give about those characters when you first introduce them. Because once that book is done, that book is done and you can't change anything like that, or you shouldn't change anything. I know some authors have tried to do that and they get slapped back by their readers. It's like, but that isn't how you set it up in book one, you know? Um, Like you said, you had a, a, a character who all of a sudden is an only child. If you have to be sure to. So when I'm introducing those new characters, um, I try to be very limited with the details because I know I haven't gotten to their story yet. So I don't know what their story is. So I don't want to set anything in stone that I'm going to walk or write myself into a corner and then have even more problems than uh, I do writing a book normally. And that's like the end game thing that I spoke about earlier, I guess. It's like once you you've sewed these things and put them into concrete and it's like when you get to the end, do you sometimes find you kind of in a, in a conundrum because you want something to end this way, but it's difficult to because of all the situations you put together? Yeah, it 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 in the one hand, it ties your hands, but on another, it also gives you a path to follow. Yeah. So um it's the best of both worlds. I mean, I wish sometimes I could just do a snap and bring everybody back and reset and have it all start over again. That would be, <laughs> that would be really nice to be able to do. 
looking that's at you, also, phase four. That's also what happened in Endgame, right? The snapping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, that's interesting because it, it's, uh, it's often what I think is almost, I, I sort of think of it as like a, as a cheat uh, when you're writing. It's not, obviously, but it's um, where you can, as the writer, you can... Uh, by the end of the book, you're saying your things are happening or whatever. And you can be like, I never really properly set that up. So let me just go back to the beginning of the book and add in some extra stuff. Right. But when you're writing that, that series, you can't do that. If you, you've published right. it, you're set in stone. So it's like you started book one as a pantser, but by the end on book 12, you're probably a little bit closer to being a plotter because of being forced into certain yes. things that you've done. Right. Yes. And, and, and it was really because my hero actually in book 12 was in every single book. And I did that purposely because, well, hope I was hoping that readers were along for the entire ride, but I, who he is in that book one, and he's a dick in book one. He's just such a jerk. He's the town mayor. Um, I wanted him on a redemption story from book one all the way through so that he earned his happily ever after he had to make a lot of changes in his life and he needed to do things differently moving throughout that series in order to be the kind of hero that I want that readers would want to read about. Because as I introduced him in book one, nobody would want to read his book. It's like, okay, this is the, this is like the, the villain of the town kind of, he had reasons for what he was doing. And as we move through the series, you saw more and more of those reasons start to pop up and you saw him more as a, as a human being. So by the time I got to his story, which, I mean, I think it was five or six years from having written that first book to re- writing the 12th book. Um, he wasn't the same person that people had seen when he first walked on the page in book one. So that's also another advantage to writing really large casts of characters is you kind of get to show off their backstory without showing off their backstory because, you know, readers can never a hundred percent believe that that person is going to get their story. I mean, they can have an instinct as to whether or not that person is actually going to earn an entire book to themselves, but, you know, and sometimes stories that are expected just don't happen for whatever reason. They can't come up with a strong enough story idea. I mean, and I'm speaking traditionally publishing here because you have to sell a book on proposal. You can't just, and indie authors have the advantage to, they don't have to worry about that. Uh, Whatever story they come up with is the story they're going to come up with. Well, I have certain guidelines and um, I don't want to say restrictions, but certain guidelines that I have to follow in order to sell a book to Harlequin. So I had to keep him in certain parameters in order to set him up to be able to sell the story, to bring his story to readers. So there's a couple of extra little steps in there when you're traditionally published. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite things, though, was to bring Gil from book one through book 12. And have him do this roller coaster kind of thing where he was ticking people off in the town. And then all of a sudden he did the right thing. And then maybe he's gearing gearing toward, oh, he's going to do something that's going to screw with this couple. And then all of a sudden he does the right thing or he doesn't do the right thing. So it was kind of like this thread that ran through the entire series that I didn't intentionally do. But um, I think it set him up for a lot of change by the time his book arrived. 
That's one of that. my favorite. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about books. I've mentioned this before, where you have a, a let's say a villain, not necessarily you know your guy wasn't necessarily a villain, but you know he's not likable in book one, right? But right. Um, in more traditional, maybe non-romance stuff, you have this like this this just bad guy. And a lot of I think I, I almost want to say like in books that were written a long time ago, it was okay to just have this evil person for the sake of being an evil person, right? But now yes. you see more people changing their perspectives to write about the villain from the villain's perspective to show you why they're a villain and to give that villain sort of, uh, you know, uh, make people a little bit more empathetic towards their plight. They're still a villain, but now you get why they became that way. They didn't just, well, they weren't just born evil. They, they became it because of their circumstances. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because motivation for me in a book is just as important as conflict. Um, I actually, I've given a workshop numerous times. It's motivation. It's the missing link in writing because um, the memorable characters are the ones where you understand where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, my mom and I just yesterday uh, rewatched Black Panther. It's one of my favorite Marvel movies because I'm going on Friday morning was it tomorrow morning? Yay. Uh, for the second one. And I wanted to rewatch this one again for the umpteenth time. And it's one of my favorite movies because of the villain, because you understand exactly where he's coming from. It doesn't matter whether you agree with him or not. The fact that it's on the screen and that you, that he clearly states why he's doing what he's doing. That's what makes Killmonger such a memorable villain. And, um, for me, why characters act the way that they do is just as important as anything else that happens in the story. Um, why we do anything in our lives is important. Uh, you know, why we go after the particular job we do, is it for financial security or is it to fill an inner, you know, an inner void or whatever, why we do what we do is tantamount to the human condition. So it has to be on the page. So with Gil, and his arc, um, he was a legacy mayor. His father was mayor. His grandfather was mayor. So on the one hand, he has a family legacy he's supposed to uphold, but he's also dealing with the emotional trauma of being emotionally abused by his father, never thinking that he was good enough, always thinking he was doing the wrong thing. So he was never really sure where he was going in his life. So he was just all over the place. And he didn't understand the importance of building relationships because he'd never seen it happen with his with his father or even his grandfather. So why Gil was the way that he was, was so pivotal into him earning that happily ever after, because he had to come to terms with the fact that, yes, he was lacking something, but he also had something to offer. So it was kind of a self-discovery uh, journey for him throughout the series. Uh, and by the time his book opens, he's pretty he's pretty, he's a lot well, more, more well thought of within the town. So motivation to me is like, it's sometimes it's even more important than the conflict, because if you don't understand why your characters are doing anything, they're just a talking head and evil for the sake of evil. Yeah. We've moved way beyond that. There's only been one character I can think of in movies that actually pulled that off really well. And I'm sure there are others, but for me, it was Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in um, The Dark Knight is because he kept changing his reasons as to why he was doing what he, he was doing it because he was having fun at it. Some because men just want to watch the world burn. 
Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? It's okay that that was the only reason because it worked. Yeah. It just well, that worked. movie. But you couldn't have that in every single bad guy. And every Absolutely movie. not. Only the Joker. Only, right. only, and that's why. And that's one reason I, I, I like those kinds of movies is because I'm always looking for the motivation. Tell me the why. If you tell me the why and I buy into it, whether or not I agree with it or not, um, you'll earn me as a fan. Yeah. And, and like where you said Black Panther was a, it was a great example. That's my favorite Marvel movie precisely because of that. Because you're almost like, well, yeah. if the, if the bad guy wins. I'm I'm actually okay with it. Right. Yeah. You. I mean, there was a moment in that movie where like, you know what? If he, if he, uh, okay. Yeah. Got, and, that, and that's, that's really, really good writing. So I'm really interested to see where they go with the second one. Shang-Chi did the same thing. I thought Shang-Chi, and that's my second favorite Marvel movie. And, okay. um, it's also because they both really embrace the hero's journey as far as what Joseph Campbell really established for us. But um, not all of the Marvel movies have done that really well. I think Iron Man did it very well. Captain America did it really well. I'm not sure that the more recent movies are doing it as well. But um, for me, Shang-Chi and Black Panther are the epitome of the tell me the why. And I will jump on that ride with you and go as far as you want to go. Yeah, yeah, and and when you're writing a, a larger cast of characters, I guess it, it might be more difficult to keep to come up with so many different motivations, so many different yeah. storylines that aren't kind of the same. Especially when you're you're kind of coming up with them all at once, you know. Sometimes yeah. that makes it harder to like think of all like twelve different things, you know, that twelve different people, right? Well, that's like with my with my Honor Bound series that I wrote for Harlequin Romantic Suspense. That was originally only supposed to be three books. Um, it will end at eight because, <laughs> hello, secondary characters show up. But the original premise of the three, which was More Than a Lawman, Reunited with the P.I. and Gone in the Night, it was uh, three heroines who had been friends since kindergarten. And when they were nine years old, their fourth friend was kidnapped and murdered and the murder went unsolved. And I really wanted to explore the idea of one event, one traumatic, horrific event, and how it would affect people in different ways. So those three heroines, in reaction to what happened to their friend, their lives, I mean, I had Eden, who just became this, like, vengeful uh, crime vlogger who was determined to help close cold cases because she wanted to get people answers that she never got for herself. So she went full bore, putting herself in danger, going after serial killers if she had to, because nobody was paying attention to the pain that the family was in. And she wanted to do what she could to fix that. The second character became a district attorney and she became all about justice and making people pay for what they did. And then the third one became a child psychologist and a criminal psychologist because she wanted to know the whys behind why people act the way they do and why they committed those crimes. So you have one inciting incident and one event that's life defining and yet three completely different reactions in how they um, dealt with the trauma and move forward with their lives, always bringing what had happened to them with them. So it was a really interesting way to, um, explore that dynamic um the rest of the series each one is a standalone but in those three books there's an overarching mystery much like what i'm doing with my red lily series in that there was that unsolved murder that they start finally getting some answers to and then by the end of book three they've got them 
and all of that pain that they've carried with them is finally healed because they've got the answers that they didn't think they were going to get. Yeah. And you had mentioned earlier about um, how you have like a system for keeping track of all this. Is that something like that you can sort of give us an idea of that might help other people sort of keep track of their characters? Sure. So what I, what I do is I, um, I have learned not to keep one note open while I'm writing because I will find a way to distract myself with everything. Uh, (laughs) um, I don't know why that is, but what I do is I keep a notebook open while I'm writing. And if I introduce a new character, I jot down exactly the details that I have put on the page, what they, if what, whatever those details are, whether it's, um, uh, a physical appearance or job or where they live or whatever it is. It goes into that notebook. And then by the time I'm finished writing the book, the notebook's pretty full. Um, and if I haven't updated the OneNote uh, documents as I'm going, I will do it when I'm done at the end of the book. Uh, usually I write the last half of the book kind of in this big and I don't let myself take, I don't take any time away from it to fill in the minutiae that doesn't really matter as I'm plowing my way through the end of the book. So, and then um, I've got one note set up in a particular way where I have a character notebook. Um, For those who don't know who, how one note works, it's kind of like having um, my friend Abigail uh, calls it, it's like an online trapper keeper. Now I'm totally dating myself Anybody out of the 70s and the 80s is going to know what that means. Anybody else probably won't. But it was like this big binder that had individual folders for different subjects in school, right? So that's really what OneNote is. You can, um, um, uh oh, I'm not hearing. Yeah, Roland, you're on mute, I think, or we're not hearing you at least. Uh oh, we lost Roland? I think he's just on mute. Oh, there you go. There he is. Oh, can you hear me now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What were you you saying? Oh, oh no! Nope. Nope. Now we lost you again. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with him. You're clapping your hands and disconnecting yourself, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's so weird. But um, um but yeah, no. Uh, so, how much detail do you get into with with that? Like, are you how much? If it went into the yeah, with? if it went into the page, it goes into my notebook because I don't know if I'm going to need it in the future, but I want it easily referenceable if I do. So. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I do. And then I um, do the uh, different notebooks. I do it for character. I do it for setting. If it's a small town, um, the town itself has its own page so that I can do a list of businesses and where those businesses are located. It's really creating a story Bible um, that ex- goes beyond the characters. But the character is really where the focus is because I know the characters are what I'm going to reference back to most, especially when I have to fill out that art fact sheet for my publishers. Right, right. And then um, you're also, I imagine, keeping like the physical um, descriptions of the characters, who their relationships are, uh, you know, all that stuff. And then is there a way other than search and replace or not search and replace, but just search uh, that you have them all sort of tied together? Or is it just, um, you know, you want to look somebody up. So you just search their name and then it pops up. And- um, I can do the search feature, but pretty much what I do is I give every, every main, every character that has is either a hero or a heroine in a story gets their own page. So everything that I learn about them, everything that I use to describe about them goes on that page. So I can just go straight to that and say, okay, 
that's how what that's what their eye color is, which I'm always switching people's eye color. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> I think we all do that. Um, yeah. But um, and then I have a page that's specifically for secondary characters. And these are people who have either been referenced or just walked on the page uh, or and walked off. Um, murder victims. I have to keep track of my murder victims. Uh, Got to keep track of the, you know, the murder suspects and any name, any character that gets a name gets put onto that secondary character list because there's a very good chance at some point I'm going to have to reference back to them. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much how I try to keep track of them. And that way um, the secondary character list also at times gives me good fodder for future heroes or heroines uh, for people I didn't expect to get a story or whatever. But so, yeah, the, the notebook while I'm writing is really important. Um, and I date it so that I know about where I was in the book when the character showed up. So that if I have to go back and find them in the manuscript and the search and replace function isn't, or the search function isn't working the way I need it to. Like if I've, I've done this where I've changed the spelling of a name. Uh, halfway through the book and I'm trying to find him earlier in the book and I can't find it. It's probably because it changed the spelling. So (laughs) I go back into the notebook and I look to see where their name first popped up, what date that was. And then I usually am pretty good about being able to remember what I was writing on what part of the process. Cause I also keep a, a word count log as I'm moving through the manuscript. So I know how many days it takes me to write a book, how many, uh, words I get per day, and I can always see it going up the closer I get to deadline. Um, so very, very um, nice. <laughs> I think it's important if 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 a character walk, walks on the page, that name should go somewhere in a record that you can reference um, and find again easily, which is the main reason I started going to OneNote is because I, I, I was giving myself a migraine flipping through notebook pages. For sure. And then is there a way to, that you can make these characters easier for the readers to follow as well? So we don't get into that George R. R. Martin situation where we're like, who is this again? Well, I, I, well, I use a trick called the Russian literature trick in that I always have a sheet that has the alphabet on. I have A through Z written on one side. And as I name my characters, I fill it in. And there is rarely. I actually just made this. I'm working on a book a series right now that's set in Hawaii and I have a lot of locals and there are certain consonants that are used frequently in the Hawaiian language, especially with with, where names are concerned. But if I'm not working in a Hawaii situation, um, none of my characters will have the same initials. And I'm very deliberate about that. Um, That's probably what I spend the most time on is coming up with character names, especially um, I did that with the Red Lily series is um, number one, I knew, well, obviously they weren't going to have the same initials, but I also put in Easter eggs with most of the names because I pulled from classic Hollywood movie stars. Uh, Quinn Burton is the hero of Exposed. Well, that comes from Anthony Quinn and it comes from Richard Burton. So um, I, uh, as I was doing that, I was, I was coming up with all of these different names and then I have to puzzle piece them together to make sure that the hero's first and last name does not have the same initials as number one, all of her best friend's names, and then all of the hero's names. And then I have to do that with each character. So does this name fit with this character? Does this hero go with this heroine or with, so it's, it's a little bit of a puzzle piece, but that to me, that attention to detail 
helps uh, more easily define those characters when they walk on the uh, walk on the page because um, they're going to have a unique name that isn't going to get confused with anybody else. So that's always number one, what I'm keeping in mind. I also try to choose really unique names. Um, I, I don't think I've done like a Jane or a Mary or, or, uh, uh, I, I don't gravitate toward everyday names. I gravitate toward more unusual names. And my editor at Harlequin sometimes gets irritated with me. She goes, can you just choose a normal name? And I'm like, no, because the unique names really stand out. And I think that's part of why I have such a hard time watching like House of Dragons, as we were talking about before we went live, is everybody has, it's as if everybody has the same name, it's just pronounced differently. And I yeah. don't want to do that to my readers because I don't want to stop them. I don't want them to get to a name and have to go, oh, wait, who is that? I got to go look that up. No, 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 no. You want people turning the page forward. You don't want them going back. So um, paying really close attention to the letters that your names start with is a really good way to do that. And the other is when, especially if they're going to get their own story down the road, um, to give them a distinguishing characteristic or a distinctive way of speaking or something special about them. Something um, like I have my heroine wear a particular uh, pendant for book two. And that pendant is introduced in book one. So as you get to know her, you understand the meaning of the pendant. And that way, when her book comes around, they're already connected to her. So giving them those little uh, character details uh, along with unique, more unique names that isn't going to get confused with anybody else is really the biggest tip I can get to keep your characters straight for your readers. That is, uh, can you hear me, guys? Yeah. Yes. So, oh, I, I think I could listen to you talk about this stuff for hours because I absolutely love all of it. This is real craft of writing. People think writing is an art, but it's more like a craft. And you're like, it a is craftsman talking about how you do all these joints oh. to make your table or whatever. But unfortunately, we have run out of time. So we are going to have to okay. wrap this up. Anna, where can people find out, uh, find more about you? Where can they find your books? You know, my website is the best place, www.authorannastuart.com. It's got all my social media links. It has all of my books listed. Uh, the newer books are right there on the front page. Sign up for my newsletter. I do giveaways in every issue. And um, it's, it's, yeah, website is hands down best place to find everything about me that is wonderful thank you so much we'll make sure to drop a link down below for that and if you are listening to this or watching it on youtube make sure to leave a comment and let us know what you think of all of the wisdom that anna has shared with us and be <laughs> sure to check out her books craig do you have any other final thoughts before we wrap up uh nothing just uh, oh sorry go ahead <laughs> no no problem. Uh, no, I, I agree. This has been fascinating. You know, we started off with the idea that we were going to talk about uh, a large cast of characters. And I think, you know, we branched a bit and just talked about characters in general, which is great because you can never talk about characters enough, especially when, you know, you're writing fiction. It's all about yeah. the relationships and the characters, whether it's romance or any other genre. Um, so, you know, it's not like uh, this was wasted uh, discussion. This was like super, super uh, interesting stuff that I think uh, our listeners will really enjoy. So thanks so much for coming on and, and talking with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was fun.
Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anna. Uh, I'm going to lobby Craig to, to maybe bring you back for, for another podcast in the future. And for everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't done already. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Fully Booked. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.